listening to right where you are sitting now. Hi there, welcome to episode 32 of Sitting Now. Um, joining me today is a, a newcomer to the show. Um, two newcomers. We have a background newcomer and a, a co-host newcomer today. Cameron Leonard Schroff. That's it. I'll, I'll do it. Uh, Cameron Leonard Schroff. There we go. Um, Thanks for having me, Ken, yeah. and uh, do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. Ooh, that gives away something there, which we'll find out later in the interview. Uh, <laughs> uh, and Paul Pony? Pony. Pony. See, I'm not very good with names. This is a, a an ongoing uh, thing with uh, the show. Love is the law. Ooh, we're getting a definite current here, <laughs> which again we'll discuss later on as well. But yeah, I know these guys, these, these uh, uh, crazy kids, I think. Crazy kids, uh, <laughs> occult savants from... Um, that, that'll do. Yeah, <laughs> from the uh, local area. Uh, yeah, they're, they're, they're good chaps and certainly know their stuff. So, uh, and actually, before we go on, we'll uh, have a, a, a nice advert break, I think. Eerie Radio. Opening the door to the unknown. Listener feedback. Really looking forward to the new episodes, so keep up with your work, guys. Thanks. Interviews. There's so many movies, so many documentaries, even books that come out that have factual information in it that maybe, you know, this is a gradual way of, of kind of educating the public to as to what's going on. Visit Erie Radio at www.erieradio.com. Excuse me, I've got some information I'd like to share with you. Did you know that 26 billion pickles are packed each year in the U.S.? That's about 9 pounds of pickles per person. More than half the cucumbers grown in the U.S. are made into pickles. Hey, pickle boy, let's talk pickles. The Podcast Pickle, that is. The Podcast Pickle is your resource for all the latest and greatest podcasts found in cyberspace with thousands of podcasts listed and more added every day. Here's some of the podcasts that you'll find at podcastpickle.com. <laughs> Geek Foo Action Grip. Beachcast. Comic Geek Speak. Speechless. Mad King. This Week in Tech. Warren Town Talk. NASCAR Zone. Shelly the Republican. A Voice from Eden. Jimmy McBean. Five Minutes with Wichita. Cinema Playground. Offbeat. The Logo Factory. The Exit 50. This and That with Jeff and Pat. Thoughts on Psychiatry. Web Hosting Show. Marlene from Berlin. Random Cast. Jazz with Tiger. American Road Trip Show. The Drew M Podcast. The Slam Idol Podcast. Forgotten Tales. The Zencast. XboxStation.net. How to Do Stuff. <laughs> Now, Pickle has a whole new meaning. PodcastPickle.com, the world's best podcast directory. So today's guest is uh, Donald Michael Craig, someone I've wanted to interview for, a, a, I always say this pretty much every week, but someone I've wanted to interview since I started the show. So what did you guys think of our interview today? I thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, really nice guy. Um, funny, um, enthusiastic, and very knowledgeable as well. I came out um, learning quite a few new things speaking to him. And uh, obviously, he's the uh, author of the seminal book, uh, Modern Magic, and uh, the companion sort of piece to that, sex, uh, Modern Sex Magic. And um, those two books, as um, you know, any occultist who's um, practicing has probably run into them. And uh, Certainly, modern magic is um, 
one of the all-time sort of bestsellers on the subject. So it's quite an honour to be in the hot seat with you and talking to the man himself. Yeah, and Cameron should only think because Cameron pretty much runs in a cult bookshop. So <laughs> yeah, so. we sold lots of his books. Yeah. Yeah. He's a book geek. Yeah, guilty. <laughs> anyway, roll to that. Hi, Donald Michael Craig. Thanks so much for coming on the show. It's great to have you on. Um, could you have? Could you give us a brief biography of yourself, please? Well, certainly. I was born in Chicago, Illinois, and moved out to Los Angeles and lived there most of my life. But I've traveled uh, pretty much through Western Europe and England and uh, uh, and the U.S. Uh, I went to school at UCLA, where I graduated with a degree in philosophy. Since I was very young, I was always interested in paranormal and unusual things, and that eventually led to the Tarot, and I got three books on the Tarot. One was uh, by Eden Gray, I think another one was by A.E. Waite, and I forget who the third one was, and I, I thought I would be able to just simply synthesize everything, but they were all so different. The only thing that they had in common was that they all said, if you want to learn the Tarot, you must learn, <laughs> excuse me, you must learn the Kabbalah. So <laughs> I started studying the Kabbalah, and uh, the rest is uh, pretty much in the books. I, uh, uh, after about 10 years of studying and practice, I ended up starting to teach courses, and after another 10 years, uh, I came out with Modern Magic. Excellent. So, I'm gonna just uh, you've answered the question a little bit there already. But um, what is it that kind of uh, drew you to magic? How did you kind of get into it, as it were? Well, I had always been interested in that, and uh, plus, I am a uh, sleight of hand magician ah, right. uh, too. That that had always interested me. Uh, but uh, uh, there were a lot of unusual phenomena that had always happened to me throughout my life. Um, and I had wondered if there were some ways to control it. Uh, when I was very young, when I was uh, five or six, my father died, and we had uh, an uncle who would get us a room in Las Vegas. And uh, we went there one time when I was about six or seven years old, and I watched my mother play the slot machines, and I begged to play, but she wouldn't let me. So I said, well, if I can't play there, I will play over here. And I walked over to a, uh, a cigarette machine, pulled the coin return, and about $1.37 in change came out. Ka-ching. Now, obviously, that could have just been chance, but there were a bunch of uh, cigarette machines. Why did I pick that one? How did that happen? I don't know, but I eventually wanted to find out about all these sort of unusual phenomena that had happened. Uh, here at uh, one point you used to live with Chris Cunningham. 
uh, Scott Cunningham. Scott Cunningham. All right. Uh, that was my bad scene. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, we'll edit that out. <laughs> yes, what happened was is I had been living in an area in the uh, uh, north of San Diego in California, and uh, our wonderful landlord decided to resurface the roof. And the type of roof they had was a, it's called a tar, tar paper and stone. They use little pebbles on top of tar paper. About a month later, uh, we had our first rains after this wonderful repair, and it turned into Victoria Falls inside the house. So I had to find a place very quickly to move to, and I went to an occult shop that I frequently visited, and on the bulletin board there was a gentleman uh, asking uh, for a roommate. And I asked around a bit, and, and they said, well, he's an occult writer. I went over and visited him, and we ended up uh, sharing an apartment for the next six years or so. Hmm. And didn't, this, uh, didn't your association with him lead you to, into the world of teaching as well? Well, I had, I had actually been teaching sometime before that. Uh, I had been teaching for several years. Um, at first, I was teaching with one of my teachers, uh, Dr. Turk, uh, who is one of the leading acupuncturists now in California. And uh, I had been teaching uh, uh, along with him, and then I started teaching Kabbalah and a variety of other topics. So I had already been doing this, but what uh, Scott introduced me to was uh, book publishing. Uh, he was just starting to get published uh, with Llewellyn, his uh, nonfiction books. Uh, most people don't know this, but he also has some gothic romance novels that he published. Uh, he published them under his sister's name, Kathy Cunningham. Uh, well, you wouldn't want a man to write <laughs> a gothic, passionate romance. We just laugh about them a great deal. Uh, but I had been teaching my course in basic magic and the Kabbalah for some years, and I decided I wanted to teach it uh, by mail order because, boy, you teach the same thing month after month, year after year. It got a little boring. I wanted to move on to other things. So I wrote it out as 52 short lessons. And uh, one day, Scott got me in touch with a gentleman who was teaching mail order courses and also publishing them. And we talked with him, and he told me to rewrite them into a set of much bigger lessons. So I did, and he started publishing them, and then he vanished. And uh, I finally got in touch with him, and he decided that uh, he was going to get out of the business. So I got the rights back. I didn't exactly know what to do, but I figured, well, I'll rewrite it into a book format, which I did, and that's what became Modern Magic. Excellent. So... Um... Yeah, so at the end of, with modern magic, I mean, how was it first received uh, when you first put it out? Because it was kind of quite seminal in the in the way that it was kind of uh, an easy to read magic book, which is very rare <laughs> nowadays, even sometimes. Well, thank you very much. Uh, it was very interesting. What actually set it off was uh, an interchange that I had with uh, uh, Israel Regardi. What happened was. Uh, I found out that Israel Regardi was redoing uh, his book, The Golden Dawn. And one of the major problems with The Golden Dawn, of course, is the structure. 
it has first the knowledge lectures, then some of the rituals, then some more information, then more rituals, and so forth. I wrote to him and begged him to put it in, a, in what I thought was a logical order. <laughs> Everything you needed before an initiation, followed by the initiation ritual, and, and so forth. And he wrote, and I also said, we need to have a, uh, uh, a, an autobiography of you. Well, he wrote back to me saying, never, no autobiography, never. And his new version of The Golden Dawn was just a larger version with larger type of, uh, and new artwork of the old version. I hear that even, and, uh, even according to Rigardi, he um, <clears throat> used uh, the finished product as a doorstopper. <laughs> yes, that's correct. He, uh, I wrote back when I, when I found the finished copy of it, and I said, wow, this looks fantastic. And he wrote back, yes, I found a great purpose for it. It makes a great doorstop. <laughs> and so from, from that time on, several of his friends and I used to refer to it as the doorstop edition of the book. <laughs> on. Uh, well, that was what, because it wasn't in a logical step-by-step -step order, that was what uh, encouraged me to really put it out, uh, plus uh, sharing uh, space with Scott Cunningham at the time. So I finished it up, sent it out, and, and I don't know if people there are writers, but when you send off something, especially for the first time to a publisher, uh, you don't have any nails left by the, for weeks and months because you bite them down to your elbows wondering what's going to happen and expecting a, uh, uh, a refusal. What happened was, uh, as a matter of fact, I ended up uh, moving away from Scott Cunningham because of a, a job opportunity. We, uh, we were still friends until his passing. He died on my birthday. I always figured that was his last joke on it. <laughs> uh, but uh, uh, one day I got a phone call from the head of the publisher, uh, Carl Weschke, and he said he thought it was fantastic and wanted to publish it. And in fact, Llewellyn ended up uh, bringing me from uh, Los Angeles out to Minnesota to work for them for the next uh, several years. Uh, and the initial response was really overwhelming. Uh, sales started moderately nicely, and I expected maybe we would sell a few thousand copies in the first year and, and settle down to a thousand or or maybe uh, 2,000 uh, over the next uh, several years. But what happened was the sales just really took off. A lot of magical groups ended up using it as, uh, uh, as their guidebook. And I still get letters and email from people saying, oh, yes, such and such a group is using this as their, uh, their first resource for people to start studying. And I think part of that was because... Uh, uh, when many people contacted me about them, I said, yeah, take it as a beginning point, but not the ending point. That is, uh, add to it, subtract to it, add what you need. It's just a guide. It's not the end-all and be-all. I, I don't think of it as being the ultimate book. In fact, I hope there never will be an ultimate book, because that would mean that magic isn't evolving and changing to meet the needs of the time. Yeah. Um uh, just sort of um, going back to something you mentioned earlier about when you first started getting into um, tarot, uh, how um, you know, after reading three different books, you you know decided to get, start studying Kabbalah if you really wanted to understand this. And um, to paraphrase Londa Kett, if you know if you're if you're already studying tarot, you're studying the Kabbalah. 
tough luck sort of thing. And I, th <laughs> I think... That sounds like Lon. Yeah. I th <laughs> and I think, um, you know, the Kabbalah is sort of daunting as it is for, you know, uh, beginners getting into it, um, is really the first step into seeing uh, the, the, the system of tarot is something, you know, you know for, for people just getting into this, is something more than fortune-telling or, you know, gypsy magic. It's, it's an actual, you know... Um, almost sort of mathematical um, system um, of, you know, filing away the universe and experiencing things. And, um, you know, you obviously drew drew upon those sort of things in, in laying out your book and um, the ideas which, you know, you write about. And I was wondering if you could sort of give us a brief uh, explanation on <coughs> how the book uh, develops from chapter one onwards and what, what your aims were with that. Um, yeah. Sure. Uh, my goal was to, uh, well, actually, it, uh, I still have the original notes from which I used to teach the lessons that are now mm. modern magic, okay. uh, of which I think there were about 20 pages or so. Mm. Uh, and the book is just a, an additional um, uh, amendment to that. Uh, the first, uh, the idea of the first several chapters was to follow the elemental pattern that you find in the initial uh, degrees of the Golden Dawn without simply repeating what was there. So in the first chapter, uh, you have basic introduction. Uh, you get basic rituals. And then each chapter, it gets a little bit more. So mm -hmm. for example, in one of the early chapters, I say, okay, take out some of these cards and just look at the major arcana cards. Mm. Several people have asked me, why take out these cards? There's no bad cards. To which I say, that's true, but some people may freak out when they see the death card or mm -hmm. the tower card. Mm -hmm. And I say, you know, work with the cards for a while and then later add them on. So that was intended for newcomers. And you'll find that as you move on later in the book, you learn how to add those other cards in, mm. then how to use them as a way to enter into the tree of life and do uh, Kabbalistic path working, sure. and then to do it completely astrally. So everything, my, my goal was that everything would add on to something else. Yeah. So that by the end of it, no matter what magical system you were interested or wanted to go into, you would have a basic grounding and be, and you could be able to say, oh, I see where they're coming from. I understand. I can do that. Hmm. Yeah. And it, it certainly succeeds in that. So. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you've obviously, the book's been out for a while now, and I, like you said, it's sold a... Uh, a fair few copies. What's the uh, what do you hear back about the most, <laughs> as it were, from people? Is there uh, particular sections of the book that people found find particularly uh, powerful or profound or anything? Or yes, there there is uh, one section which well, there are several sections. It seems to change from time to time, but uh, the one section that people really find powerful is actually something which. And I will say this very loosely. I created it. It's based on other concepts, but I was the first one to put it in writing, which is called the IOB technique. And this is a way for dealing with various issues, problems, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. manifestations that come into your life where you take whatever it is, and the first thing you do is identify what the problem is, 
Then you objectify it, that is, give mm-hmm. it some sort of shape, make it into an object, and then you banish it and get rid of it from your life. Mm-hmm. And interestingly, aspects of that correspond to the very uh, simplest forms of magic, known as sympathetic magic, and also to some of the very most advanced uh, or most modern versions of magic that you can find in uh, what's called neuro-linguistic programming, uh, of which over the past few years I've become a master practitioner, and I say, oh, I see what they're doing. It's exactly what I was writing about years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, Leary um, often drew parallels between uh, NLP and uh, and ceremonial magic, didn't he? I mean, that was, uh, he noticed the parallels himself as well. Uh, yes, well, I think there are a lot of parallels. I'm giving uh, workshops these days uh, which uh, combine three different systems, and, and this is something that I find very interesting. If you take a look at neurolinguistic programming, the concept there is very strongly on linguistics. Hmm. If you take a look at a lot of what chaos magic practitioners are doing, they're working a lot with the visual aspects Mm. of symbols or what might be called semiotics. Mm. And there's a new gentleman, uh, his name is Dunn, D-U-N-N, who's released a book called Postmodern Magic. And I'm very, very much enthused uh, about this book. His name is Patrick Dunn, Mm. uh, and actually has two books out. His first one, though, Postmodern magic seems to combine both linguistics and semiotics, the, uh, the viewpoint of working with symbols in unique ways uh, to form magic as, it would apply, as we can use it with a, a very modern attitude. Uh, for example, uh, he has completely new concepts on what the meaning of evocation is and how it has to do actually with working with language and symbols to bring our symbolic pattern closer to the symbolic pattern represented by the entity you wish to evoke. Mm -hmm. So therefore, uh, one of his ideas is spend a lot of time thinking as the entity you wish to evoke would think, Mm -hmm. or as he calls it, what would Buer do? or WWBD, and uh, that may not be funny in the UK, but here in the US, people are running around with, uh, with bracelets that say WWBD, yeah, yeah. what would Jesus do? <laughs> so, uh, it's, yeah, now it's funny. If you've got to explain it, it's not a good joke. <laughs> no, 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 no. Uh, we, have, uh, we have a guest on occasionally called Ivan Stang, who runs the Church of the Subgenius, and you can get what would uh, Bob... Yes, I know. I, I've met Ivan many times. Yeah, you can, he's, I've got a what would Bob do uh, uh, sticker somewhere. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> I've, I have suggested that he should uh, market a set of knives so you can cut yourself some slack. <laughs> <laughs> but he's never gone ahead with that. I don't know why. Uh, give, him, give him time. I'm sure he will. <laughs> can, we get, can, we get a, can we get a praise Bob from everyone? Please. Yeah, praise Bob. Praise yeah, Bob. <laughs> so, um, one part of the book that really interested us um, was your. Uh, often, when you read magical texts, they they'll talk exclusively about the will, but you also put as much emphasis on the imagination. I was wondering if you could talk about that a bit. Uh, certainly, a lot of people, I think, have an idea of imagination where the imagination is not real. Mm. That is, 
you have imaginary friends. You, you're just imagining things, and it's not important. But in fact, I would say that the imagination, which is actually the ability to create things on uh, a non-physical plane, is very important. Uh, from my readings and my experience, I would say that a great deal of magic involves creating things on the non-physical planes and then allowing them or encouraging them to manifest on the physical. So you need to be able to create on the astral plane or on the non-physical plane, and that is done through the imagination. Hmm. The will is what powers it. So, uh, I mean, there are people who fantasize and they use their imagination all the time, but things don't manifest because they don't have their willpower, uh, their, uh, their conscious drive, uh, making everything work. So the imagination is what does the creation, but the willpower is what you need to manifest the creation. Mm. Yeah, very yeah. interesting. Um, I'm not sure if it was in your book or if it was um, another author. I, it might, it might be. It was a, quite a while since I last read Modern Magic, but um, the imagination as the image-making faculty um, being quite important to magic. Could you maybe talk about that a little bit? Sure. That is not specifically in in my book. Uh, however, I have read things about that uh, or similar concepts to that in a variety of other books, including a neurolinguistic programming sure. concept. And yes, I, I would certainly agree that the imagination is that creation ability, the ability to uh, create things. Mm. Uh, one, one of the things that I do talk about is the idea of the tetragrammaton as a model for creating things. Sure. That is, the first thing you have to do is see a need. Okay, there's four steps. The one is first to see a need, then see a way to uh, solve the need. The third step is to build or create whatever it is mm -hmm. which will solve the need. And the fourth step is to use it. So, for example, let's say you were going to give a lecture and you needed something to hold your paper. So mm -hmm. the first part, the initial yud, is that seeing that there is an original need. The second part is coming up with uh, a solution for it. Well, I need to make a stand that's uh, this many uh, meters So it's like the idea, the idea of the solution, essentially. Exactly. Yeah. And that would be where the imagination comes in. The next step would be putting it all together, building it. That's where the will comes in. And then the last step is using it. Now, it may not be that, that the building it requires hammer and nails. It could be just doing a ritual. Mm. And the fact of the matter is a lot of people are, uh, they talk much more about doing rituals than actually doing them. Yeah. <laughs> so sometimes just doing the rituals uh, is enough to get everything moving and get that thing that you have imagined to manifest on the physical plane. And of, uh, of course, everything that's ever been created has started life off in the imagination. Absolutely. With, without somebody thinking it, imagining it, or creating it in their mind, uh, it wouldn't be. So the imagination somebody is quite real then. <laughs> it, 
Exactly, exactly. I mean, somebody had to come up with uh, with chocolates that explode in your mouth, the springs shooting out. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, interesting question. I've seen you. I've seen you ask this a few times, but I'd like to ask you it myself as well. Is uh, a lot of people get asked this? I think. Do you think magic is connected to spirituality in any way, or is it more of a kind of a science than a faith? That's a very good question. I think they are related but not necessarily intrinsically. Uh, by that I mean I would say magic is a spiritual science that uses things that we normally think of as being very spiritual. The problem is, is that in our modern world, we have separated our notions of spirituality from everyday existence. But spirituality, I believe, should be part of what we are mm. every day just as magic is what we do, what we are every day. And therefore, there is a connection, but you do not have to be spiritual in the sense of uh, head in the clouds, going to uh, church every week or something like that, or, or praying to deities in order to work magical uh, uh, rituals and magical practices, but you may be calling on the magical, uh, excuse me, on deities, spirits, and so forth, which other people would say, means that it's spiritual. So I would say the important thing is that it's all interconnected. On, on a sideline, uh, or a side note to that, a lot of people say, well, if magic works, how come when I do magic, it doesn't work? And part of the answer, I believe, is that we're doing magic all the time. Sure. Seven, uh, seven days a week, 24 hours a day. We just don't acknowledge that we're doing it. So if you do a ritual in five minutes in the morning going every day and every way, I'm getting better and better. I feel myself covered with money. The money is all around me. It's coming to me and so forth and so on. And then for three hours out of the day, you go, oh, I wish I had a better job. I wish I had more money. How am I going to pay my bills? They're going to, they're going to foreclose and I'm going to be out on the street. I don't know. And then uh, a month down the the road, you don't have any money, you're in just as bad a condition, and you say, well, I guess the magic doesn't work. And I would say, no, it worked perfectly. It's just <laughs> not what you were expecting. Yeah, definitely. So, um, uh, another question I've seen you get asked quite a few times, but um, I always find this a fascinating thing. Um, what, what are the kind of misconceptions that you see uh, uh, applied to magic, you know, when people that, I guess people that on practitioners, if they ask you questions, what what are the kind of pre misconceptions I suppose <laughs> that they have? Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's there, there's actually I think a couple of or or two aspects. One would be misconceptions of people who uh, don't have much experience in magic, and then the misconceptions of people who are beginning in magic. The people who don't have any knowledge at all generally get their misconceptions from. Uh, movies and TV and, and uh, novels and comic books or, or excuse me, graphic novels. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and you know, they ex and they end up ex expecting something like Harry Potter, where you wave a wand, mumble some words poorly, and poof, magic happens. Mm -hmm. And what I like to explain is magic sets natural things in motion. That's what it does. It's, uh, what Harry Potter does is, uh, is movie 
wonders, it's miracles, but that's not real magic. Real magic is setting things in motion so that natural means take place. I, I like to give the example of, let's say you know you need $50, so you do a ritual for $50, and then you go out for a walk that you normally take every day, but today you decide to go left instead of right at one turning, and you go partway down the street and you meet a friend who says, hey, here's that $50 that uh, I owed you. <laughs> Everything happened by natural means, but why did you decide to turn left instead of right at that particular time, at that particular day? And that's what I would call the magical response, that you do the magic and the universe responds to you. Hmm. So uh, there, there was a movie which was called uh, uh, Demons or, or, or something like that, where some kids get a book and they mumble some bad Latin, and all of a sudden the ground opens up and these little nasty demons come uh, sprouting out and trying to take over everything. Hmm. I'm going, if that was true, every book on magic that had ever been published would be locked up and would be considered <laughs> national dangers. There would be no such books. Now, obviously that doesn't happen. The other thing... Uh, Ooh, okay, here, here, excuse me while I get on my high horse or into <laughs> my rant mode here, as if I'm not already. Uh, I have a great deal of admiration for people such as Peter Carroll and the people who founded and started uh, everything that is going on as the chaos magic system. In fact, uh, the woman who brought chaos magic to the United States, her name is Lola Babylon, is mm -hmm. a friend of mine. And uh, many years ago, I wrote for what may have been the first Chaos Magic journal in the U.S., which was called uh, Thanateros. Mm. And one of the key things about some of those founders of Chaos Magic is that they knew magic. They are really, really, really good magicians. What happened over here in the U.S. is that uh, a lot of people said, what? Excuse me. A lot of younger gentlemen, okay, boys, said, what? I don't have to study and I can do magic? I don't have to learn anything? Well, uh, as a result, it, it turned out at the beginning of the chaos magic movement in the U.S., several young people who were just doing crazy stuff thinking they were doing magic, I got into uh, a debate with one man uh, he was saying the great thing about magic is that it doesn't have to accomplish anything. It's just that you do it. And I said, well, you do realize that one of the first books on chaos magic was called Results Magic. <laughs> and uh, he never talked to me again. <laughs> that. So uh, I think one of the things is that people expect, uh, even people who are, uh, have been doing magic for a while, that if you get just that one more ritual or that one more magical tool and just learn a special word or a special exercise, suddenly you, uh, you don't have to do anything else. The magic will happen. But in fact, like any skill, magic is a study and a practice. And the more you study, the more you practice, the better you are at it. Some people are naturally skilled, but if they don't practice and they don't study, then uh, then someone who does study and who does practice but 
is not as naturally talented at magic as, as they are, can excel and become even better than the naturally gifted magician. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. So uh, one thing we talked a lot, I mean, we spoke to Isaac Bonwitz uh, recently about this, um, was that there seems to be like swings of popularity with magic and uh, it seems to be uh, spawned by various factors. And I was wondering, why do you think, why do you personally think that magic sort of goes through these kind of renaissances um, from time to time? Well, this has been a rather long uh, uh, cycle, thankfully. Mm. Uh, what, uh, and I would say it's been for the last, oh, gee, since uh, right after World War II, really, mm. uh, has been the modern trend. Uh, there is a, a book by a woman, and I don't know how to pronounce her name, but she's out where you are. I believe her name is Chuchia. Uh, called Surrealism and the Occult. Yeah, I saw that. Where she, she makes a wonderful case that it's the Surrealists who maintained uh, magic and occultism between World War One and World War Two, And, of course, before uh, World War One, you had uh, the, the Golden Dawn, the OTO. Then you have World War... Uh, uh, and with World War One, which destroyed a zillion people, and was immediately followed by uh, the worldwide flu devastation, which, can, which destroyed even more. People were more interested in, uh, like, raising families and, and, uh, and getting enough workers in order to fill factories and the like. So I think the major uh, growth and, uh, and, and decays in cycles of magic have a lot to do with the uh, societal and sociological issues of the time. When people have more money and more time, they become more interested in the spiritual. When you don't have money, you become more interested in getting a job and, uh, and feeding your kids. Hmm. Uh, well, that sort of leads us on to the next question quite nicely. Um, Talking about swings in popularity, it seems that since the late 60s and after, um, the occult, if you want to call it infiltrating, has sort of uh, made its impact uh, uh, and has put its stamp on popular culture and especially the counterculture, which <laughs> kind of seems to be becoming mainstream uh, culture more every day. Um, what, why do you th why do you think that is? I mean, we've got things like uh, this, you know, the secret uh, and the Celestine prophecy, and and all these sort of things which are coming through mainstream culture. Even uh, action films like The Matrix are you know completely gnostic in in theme. And I was wondering if you could just talk talk about that a little. I mean, it seems that you know straight after um, the whole '60s, uh, you know, flower generation. Uh, it's you know we've got astrology in, in almost every mainstream bookstore, and um, and I, I just find that fascinating. It seems like it hasn't really um, uh, given up the momentum since since those days. Well, I I uh, I agree partially. Uh, it's what uh, some people who I know have called have said that uh, occultism is now in the mainstream. It's not out of the mainstream anymore. You can go into large mm. businesses, and you can find that they have feng shuied their offices. <laughs> well, you you could you could do uh, an NLP seminar for a for a corporate bodies, you know. Absolutely, absolutely, and they're wide open for it. Uh, what I see is, uh, I I firmly what what I see has happened though 
is that uh, during this period of growth, what has happened is is that there are, if you can imagine a uh, uh, an X Y scale, there are actually two lines. One I would call the pop line mm. uh, or popular line, and the other is the underlying strength line. So, if you take a look, the pop line had, would have huge swings. Something is up. So uh, the Celestine Prophecies is very popular, and then it goes down. <laughs> yeah. And then we have uh, 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 codes in the Bible become very popular. And then, and then, and then Da Vinci Code and, and things like this, yeah. Exactly. And, and then uh, uh, we have The Secret, which, of course, is uh, the old law of attraction, sure. uh, which, which has been known for a, a bazillion years. Uh, uh, has gone up now, and mm -hmm. it's still up, although it's starting to go down, because uh, the pop side of it looks for something new. Mm -hmm. But what happens is, I believe, is that underneath it, there's a group of people who are interested from that popular fad style, and they go, maybe there's more into it. And so they investigate more. So you have this hardcore group, which is slowly increasing and getting larger. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't have this show-off up at the top where the fads are. Uh, it's not the, uh, uh, the Kabbalah Center Kabbalah that you find that, uh, that Madonna is going to. Sure. But it's, that may get people involved, and then they start looking in for the deeper things. And the faddists... Uh, leave, but that hardcore is slowly and increasingly growing. And I think you'll... Uh, I was just writing something the other day to a, a young man uh, about the idea of, of... He felt terrible because he wanted to learn magic, but his parents were saying no. And I said, well, I'm not going to say you should do things against what your parents are doing. There's, I mean, you've got to live there and I suggest that you live in harmony with them. But there are things that you can do that will, uh, uh, that can prepare you for being a magician for later. Mm. And one of those things that can prepare you is becoming popular, learning how to deal with people. And uh, in one case, for one person who was a little older, I recommended a book by, uh, called Instant Rapport, by a guy named Brooks, which uh, has a lot of NLP techniques. Mm. But I, I give some basic techniques such as ask your friends questions, listen to what they have to say, become interested in what they are interested in. Mm. In other words, this hardcore of people who really want to learn magic, they're not flighty faddists. They are really intent on learning the techniques. And I think if you take a look at some of the uh, wealthiest people, some of the people who have uh, important positions in politics, they may not call it occultism <laughs> or the law of attraction, but they're familiar with many of the techniques yeah. and many of the concepts, and they're the ones who put it into use. There's a story about how, um, uh, uh, how a famous scientist, whose name skips my mind right now, uh, Newton, was asked by uh, a little minor character. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think I've heard of him. He was uh, supposedly at, uh, made fun of by uh, uh, by another person. Said uh, the 
uh, who said, why do you pay any attention at all to this astrology? It's a bunch of bunk. And Newton's uh, response was, Sir, I have studied astrology. You have not. <laughs> Brilliant. And uh, uh, yeah, that was. Uh, uh, and and uh, as I like to tell my students, don't take my word for it. Check it out yourself. That may be an alleged story. However, Newton wrote far more about religion, uh, astrology, astronomy, alchemy, and yeah. uh, alchemy than he wrote on science. And yet, he's famous for science. And his family and other scientists were so embarrassed about his interests <laughs> that they wouldn't allow a lot of his papers to be published until the 1980s. That's incredible, isn't it? Yeah. Isn't yeah. It? Yeah. So you say you have people writing to you asking for advice still. Obviously, I guess this is a result of modern magic and uh, and your books. Um, when, when, when people write to you about joining initiatory orders like the ATO or the Golden Dawn, what are your opinions on those types of groups? And do you think they're helpful for the uh, for the budding magician as it were well certainly the structure is helpful i think different people need different things some people one of the problems and i see this a lot in uh, uh the study of the craft by solitaries is that if i say you go study this subject you're going to study those things that interest you and not other aspects so as a result, people may not get a thoroughly rounded study of the topics that they, they are studying in a particular field. Whereas if you are in a, uh, uh, a magical order or organization, uh, they will often tell you to study certain things no, no, and be able to pass tests on them no matter how much you hate them. I was in one group where I had to learn how to do geomancy and I couldn't think of anything more boring than <laughs> geomancy. Pick up some rocks, lay them out, look up the answer in a book. I could do the same thing in a few seconds in, uh, using, uh, uh, using tarot cards. But no, I had to learn it. And I think I'm more rounded because I know the concepts of uh, uh, of geomancy now. But, oh, man, did I hate learning. <laughs> uh, of course, there are, there are other problems that you have with various organizations. Some organizations have uh, leaders who are, um, <clears throat> let us say, not the best of people. How about that? That sounds good. And uh, I wouldn't want to be associated with them. So I tell people that if they're thinking of joining an order, think about it or imagine that there's a nice guillotine blade right inside the door to joining that order. If you just take go in a little bit at a time, if a guillotine blade comes down, the worst that's going to happen is you'll lose a little hair, and that'll come back. Yeah. Well, in most cases. But... <laughs> <laughs> but I'm getting a little thin up there. Oh, yeah, uh, tell me about but it. On the, <laughs> on the other hand, if you take a, a big step and stick your head through all of a sudden and just go in hog wild, then if the blade comes down, it cuts off your head. And I don't think there's all that many people who are uh, really damaged by occult practices uh, in spite of uh, all of the uh, satanic ritual abuse claims and stuff, which as I imagine you know, was primarily a bunch of garbage. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, there are people who have some bad experiences with groups, and it sets them back on their own 
studies. Hmm. So I say just go in slowly. Make sure it's right for you. Listen to your heart. If your heart says this feels right, then go ahead slowly. Otherwise, not saying anything's wrong with a group or anything's bad with them, but uh, they just may not be right for you. Hmm. I think, um, like you said, a minute ago, it um, it all depends on the person's need, doesn't it? And I think, um, you know, a certain magician may wish to uh, plug in or tap into a certain current, whether that be Thelemic or Golden Dawn or, or you know, what have you. And, um, you know, orders can provide that um, magical link, um, you know, to a, to a current. And uh, I think, you know, that's why um, uh, some people are attracted to such orders, for instance. Well, yes, and uh, uh, of course the problem that you can have with that, and this is nothing new, is that uh, which OTO, which Golden Dawn, I know of <laughs> half a dozen of each these days, and they're all yelling that they are the only official ones and all that sort of thing. But there is the, the, the question of the current, and being able to tap into a current of a particular system, whether it's uh, as you said, the Golden Dawn system or, or the Thelemic system or, or the Chaos Magic system, being able to tap into that uh, and sort of grab onto it and ride along with it can certainly enhance your power and your magical skills. Mm -hmm. I like to say that this is sort of this is similar to what in the U.S. we had uh, what were called speakeasies. Yeah. When alcohol was illegal, uh, there were certain places that sold sold booze, but you had to have the password to get in. If you didn't have the password, they wouldn't let you in. Now, on the other hand, if you knocked enough times and made friends with the uh, gatekeeper, with the guardian, uh, then eventually he's going to say, okay, I know you, come on in. And I think it can be the same way with magical currents. That is, it may be faster to be initiated into a version of the OTO or the Golden Dawn or the IOT or, or some other organization. But for people who either don't wish to join a group or who uh, are too far away from another group, I think it's also possible to really uh, immerse yourself in the teachings, spend the time teaching, uh, uh, learning it, practicing the techniques, and especially today, asking people questions over the Internet uh, and through email and the like. And you can eventually sort of grab on to that current, even without being a member of the group. Now, that doesn't mean that you are a member of the group. You can't say, I'm a member of the Golden Dawn. Well, who initiates you? I was never initiated. But I, I've been spending all this time studying it. You can say, wow, I'm really involved in the Golden Dawn current, mm. and that can certainly help you with your magical progression if that is your particular system. Uh, so I don't think it's necessary to become part of a group, but it can speed things up. Uh, my friends, uh, uh, Chick and Sandra Tabitha Cicero, have a book out called, I believe it's Initiation into the Golden Dawn yeah, Tradition. Yeah. One of the first and, books I ever um, picked up on magic, actually. <laughs> uh, yeah. Oh, oh, really? Yeah. yeah, well, they're, yeah. What, they are wonderful people, and they do come over to England from time to time. Uh, and very friendly and cordial. I love them to pieces. And... Uh, 
uh, we've talked many times about exactly this matter, that there's a difference between being part of a group and not being part of a group, but that doesn't mean that you can't tap into the current. Sure. Yeah, yeah. That's I, th- I think the other, uh, just quickly, I think the other sort of aspect about orders is um, uh, it could, you know, for some people it can get quite lonely. And aside from all the other things you've mentioned, um, for the fraternal aspect of orders and getting getting together with people who aren't going to look at you for carrying around that, book what is it called modern magic in your bag <laughs> and, um you know i mean you know i confess i'm a member of the atl i'm a freemason as well and i think the uh, the, the beside anything else the most i've got out of these things is the fraternity and the, and the people i've met and things like this so that i think that's another um you know another reason people sort of may seek these things out i think that's also incredibly important the the fraternity the friendship and uh and and so forth however I think there is a growing number of people who cannot regularly meet with others. Mm. And so what I see is various things such as uh, festivals, conventions, mm-hmm. groups of the like, uh, taking the place, or I shouldn't say taking the place, being an addition to uh, the weekly or monthly meetings of regular groups. Uh, I like to participate you're over there in England and want to bring me over, here's a hint. Um, I, I love to come out. I, I just uh, flew across the U.S. and was giving workshops in Florida, and I've recently given some in the middle of the country and in, in the unusually named town of French Lick, Indiana. Uh, yes, it really is a town called <laughs> Indiana, where they have a, a wonderful uh, festival called Babylon Rising. I've heard of it, and, yeah. And uh, I've also uh, do ones uh, like in Northern California, uh, at a, at one called PantheaCon, where we get many hundreds and even thousands of people coming together. Uh, and it's just that brief amount of time together that can be very important. There's a book by a guy named Hakeem Bey, Mm-hmm. Uh, which is called uh, uh, TAZ, which mm. stands for Temporary, Temporary Autonomous Zone. Yeah. Yeah. It's a bit, yeah. very popular in England. Se- yeah. yeah, setting up these, these, these groups. You know, they temporarily come together, and then they fade away, and you come out uh, re-energized, enervated, and ready to go. Uh, probably the biggest one that I can think of isn't even occult-oriented, and that's the Burning Man Festival. Mm. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, which is like 40,000 people. Yeah, I know our patron saint of our site, Robert Anton Wilson, was very uh, very into TAZ. Yes. <clears throat> but, uh, okay, so... Um... One question I've been meaning to ask, well, wanting to ask you, rather, is uh, how do you, how has being a magician changed in the uh, in the information age, in the age of technology and the internet? Has has that be has that? Uh, I mean, for example, initiatory orders, I imagine, are finding it harder to keep their secret secret these days. And uh, yes, we are. <laughs> and, um... <laughs> well, some of them try by buying up old books and the like, hmm. uh, but the fact of the matter is. Uh, today, uh, boy, the genie is out of the lamp, and there's no pushing it back. Mm. Uh, the thing is, uh, like there was there was an occult shop in New York for a long time uh, called uh, I think it was the Sorcerer, was 
sorcery shop. Uh, now there was the Warlock shop, and then they changed it. <laughs> they put out a magazine called Pagan, excuse me, Earth Religion News, and the motto of the magazine was uh, "Reveal the secrets, guard them constantly." Hmm. And the thing is, you can tell somebody over and over the deepest occult secret that you can think of. And unless they're ready to understand it and use it, it's going to be meaningless. Absolutely. Mm. So I'm not worried about it. I I welcome the fact that, uh, boy, I can go online. Okay, I have a copy of the 1974 Wiser edition of the Equinox. Uh, But I can go online and read the entire thing, including just being able to... uh, do queries through it and, and go through it in a matter of seconds. I don't need this huge book anymore. Mm. Uh, virtually all of the traditional uh, grimoires and many that were virtually impossible to find, all you have to do is a search and there they are online. You can go through the whole thing. You can find out uh, what was in them, uh, books that are out of print mm-hmm. and hard to find. Well, you can find them easily on the Internet these days. So a lot of the raw information is now out there. Mm. And it's mobile. But I think that in this sense, we have the same problem that the Internet as a whole has, which can be called information overload. How do you decide what it is that's going to help you as opposed to what is excuse me, totally worthless to you. Mm. Yeah, so uh, do you really need to read The Black Pullet? Mm. <laughs> <No>? It's quite <laughs> short. <laughs> yeah, it's almost like a point of, uh, it's, it's like there's a lack of contextualization and you find this within all sorts of uh, areas of the internet and information and especially within journalism. There's a, there's a lack, without the kind of, talk, the kind of frameworks in place to kind of put these things into perspective, you, sure. sure you can have all the knowledge but is it actually really going to mean anything? <laughs> well, exactly. Uh, as, as I'm sure you know, here in the U.S., we have a wonderful, well, it's actually around the world, we have a wonderful network uh, which describes itself as reporting the news as being fair and balanced. Oh, yeah, mm-hmm. Fox. Yeah, we know them well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, don't want, I don't want news that's fair and balanced. Mm. I want news that's truthful and accurate. Yeah. And many times that means it's not going to be fair or it's not going to be balanced. If it's fair and balanced, then that guy who just uh, killed uh, 15 children in, in a hospital, you know, he has to get on and present his view. I don't care his views. He's bonkers. <laughs> Jail, throw away the key. You know, make sure he's the guilty party. I don't want to hear his side. I don't need to hear his side. Uh, I don't need it to be fair. I don't need it to be balanced. I need it to be truthful and objective. And unfortunately, it seems more and more that all of the news networks are being less and less uh, objective and truthful and more and more fair and balanced. Mm, that's true. Definitely. So um, I just want to sort of switch subjects slightly a bit because we wanted to cover this uh, with you because we haven't yet on the show. Um, what drove you to write a book about sex magic? Well, sex, of course. (laughs) Other than Uh, the obvious. (laughs) No. no. Well, uh, okay, I don't know if you know him. There is a wonderful gentleman uh, who lives in London uh, named Michael. Uh, And many, many years ago, I wrote to Michael when he was the head of a magazine, which I got from a used bookstore called Sophis. And... 
uh, Sophus uh, produced, uh, or the, the Sophus Publishing Company also produced the a little booklet with the original Golden Dawn cipher mm-hmm. um, manuscripts. That sure. found is this Michael order. Staley you're talking about? No, not Michael Staley. Oh, right. This is uh, uh, Michael, who's also known as, I, I don't know if he wants his full name. Oh, no, that's fine, that's fine. Yeah. It's uh, he goes under Sri Lokanath Maharaj also, okay. and he wanted to know if I wanted to be uh, initiated into his tantric order, Amukos, mm. which I imagine you have heard of. Well, mm. I, I said I I wasn't really interested, but I said sure, and I found out that tantra was really a lot more than uh, the books that say. Uh, uh, tantric sex is not wham bam thank you ma'am it's wham bam 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 bam, bam, bam. <laughs> thank you god <laughs> and uh, uh, you know there are and, and, and anyway I, I found that most of the books that were supposed to be about western sex magic were actually about tantra and I started investigating to discover whether or not there was actually a traditional western path of sex magic. And in fact, there is a traditional path that has nothing to do with Tantra. Uh, it's, uh, you know, even groups such as the OTO and the Golden Dawn have Tantra involved in them. Um, the Golden Dawn had Tantra? Yeah, there was a book that was published by a Tantric, uh, and it was published by the, it was written by a Tantric, published by the Theosophist. Mm-hmm. His name was Rama Prasad, and the name of the book was Nature's Finer Forces. Published in the late 1880s, I believe, hmm. wow. uh, and almost immediately the Golden Dawn absorbed one aspect of the book, which is the Tathas and the Tathic Tides, and it completely came from that. It was a tantric teaching. Hmm. Of course, uh, I'm sure this will be highly debatable, but uh, some of the sex magic teachings of the OTO uh, certainly are derived from aspects of Tantra. Mm-hmm. There is a Oh, boy, I'm, I shouldn't even mention it. There's a small booklet, which is about sex magic. It was written by a woman, and it describes a Crowley OTO sex magic ritual very disparagingly mm. as a bad imitation of a tantric rite. Mm. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and forgive me, I can't think of the name of it right now. I only have a photocopy of it. Uh, anyway... Uh, I started looking for it, and if you take a look back in time, you will find that certainly there are lots of Western traditions that had nothing to do with Tantra in India. Uh, and, uh, I mean, you can take a look at, uh, there's a, was a group called the Barbello Gnostics and the like. Oh, yes, and, yeah, yeah. And you can follow them along, follow these groups along and see how uh, this Western form or Kabbalistic aspect of sex magic actually came through the ages. Mm-hmm. In the 15th century, there was a uh, book published in Europe in Hebrew. Uh, it was called The Holy Letter. And this was supposedly a Jewish marriage manual, but if you <laughs> read it, it is basically the entire ninth degree the OTO mm. laid out for anybody to read. Yeah. Uh, uh, quite astoundingly so. So mm-hmm. I followed it along, followed in, including, uh, uh, I, I ended up having to purchase college uh, theses or theses, 
Thesi. <laughs> Thesi. <laughs> yes, being careful of the first letter. Uh, <laughs> in order to find out information that simply was not available in other locations, and it became uh, uh, quite clear as to what the sex magicians of the West were doing, how their path came through the Meister singers, the mini singers, mm. uh, the, uh, uh, the people who met Sub Rosa under the rose, uh, mm -hmm. where the Rosicrucians mm -hmm. supposedly met, and, and so forth to pass along this uh, sexual gnosis, sexual wisdom. And that's the type of thing that I uh, had published in my book, Modern Sex Magic. When it was first published, on the back cover in the upper corner, they put a little label as to where the book should be filed. And uh, they insisted that it include the word Tantra on there. And I said, but it's not Tantra. It's sure. not Tantra at all. It's Western. And while there are a lot of books that have some Western magical techniques and, uh, along, with, uh, sex mag uh, along with Tantric techniques, as far as I know, mine is the only one that is strictly Western sex magic. Mm -hmm. uh, I have seen some books on Tantra which talk about how uh, uh, there's this, this wonderful Tantra, and then they go into Taoist theories. In fact, there's an, an, on the other side, there's a new book, The Ultimate Form of, of Tantra, and they're talking about Taoism. Mm -hmm. And I won't even go into this one book, which is... Uh, the Pleiadian Tantric Workbook, <laughs> which teaches you Tantra from the Pleiades. Of course, who else? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, one thing I found interesting is that you t um, you, you see a kind of uh, a divide in other sex magic books um, between the male and female, where the male seems to be the main um, focus of the book, and the female seems to almost pretty much be ignored. Could you talk a little bit about that and how you tried to sure, rectify yeah. that in the book? Sure, it certainly does seem that way. If you take a look at uh, uh, Crowley's books, it was all about the man. If you take a, uh, in fact, he has uh, one little paper that went to his inner order initiates called uh, Emblems and Modes uh, or something along that way. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just talking about the title, nothing else. Uh, but he he advises, you know, you can do sex magic with women and not even tell them what you're doing. Mm. Uh, in, uh, uh, let's see, in another book, this one guy writes home, uh, writes back to the main order, and it's all about him. It's all about what the man does. They send out a woman for him to work with. And when you read most of the books that I've seen about uh, sex magic, the ones that are written by women... Not all of them, but primarily seem to be share your nice feelings. And the ones written by the men are, well, the man does this and the woman helps. Then the man does this and the woman helps. And then the man does this and the woman helps. Um, now, part of the problem, uh, if you go back to a lot of the, uh, the sex magic books that were written, uh, say, before 1960, 1970, is that they were highly influenced by the industrial revolution that is mm -hmm. machines, mechanics, mm -hmm. things, stuff. Therefore, uh, you use the results 
of your magical rituals, that is the elixir, the combined sexual fluids or the sexual fluids. And part of what I was realizing as I was studying all of these Western, uh, and, uh, these ancient Western texts and the like, was that the focus was not on the fluids, but it was on the energy. And even on the ones that talk about the fluids, they're saying that the fluids have to be energized. Sure. And Crowley practically gave it away in, in uh, energized enthusiasm. Yeah. Uh, so it's about the energy that goes into the fluids and not the fluids per se, which is not just to say that the fluids can't be used, but the important aspect is the energy. Mm. Now, if that's true, then it no longer means that the man does this and the woman does that, but rather one person or one set of people do this and another set of people do that. So that means that uh, you can have uh, couples that are straight, gay, lesbian, bi, uh, groups of people, uh, in a variety of assortments, working with energy raised through sexuality, and it doesn't matter uh, if part A is inserted into slot B or not. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, by the way, I, I am grateful to see that even, uh, as Shaw said, we are two countries separated by a common language. And I'm very grateful to see that you are laughing at some of my comments. And I would like to say that I'm having far too much fun to take myself seriously. But if people are wondering there, I take what I'm saying very seriously. Indeed. But if we were talking about it very low and serious, <laughs> I, I you think know, like public television or something like that, people will be turning away and going, I don't want to hear this anymore. Yeah. So I believe there's no reason why we can't have fun oh, yeah. talk about Oh, we've had Lon Muller Duquette on the show a couple of times. He's always good fun as well. Oh, well, Lon, I am very, very proud to call a friend. And he is one of the most hysterical people I know. Yeah, he's uh, funny. We became friends when he heard that I had told people, oh, Lon Duquette, he's the kind of person who gives a cultism a good name. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, definitely. And uh, it's true. He is a wonderful person, friendly, joking. He's a good musician and uh, willing to laugh and incredibly knowledgeable. Incredibly knowledgeable. Um, just uh, like to go back quickly on, uh, you were saying uh, while you are writing the book, there was um, research on uh, the purely Western uh, forms of sex magic throughout throughout the ages. And uh, you, you just mentioned the Barbella Gnostics very briefly, and um, that's actually you know, it's a big topic of interest and research for me. I was wondering, was that the sort of the earliest that you, you traced this uh, sort of sexual energy-raising techniques in the West? Um, or was, did you find something further than that? Um, or, or older than that, even? Sure. Going back, okay, unfortunately, going back that early, we're reaching the beginning of most communication. Sure, yeah. Of things. And if you go back earlier, a lot of those cultures did not... Uh, carry their information strongly into the West. Sure. There is some, now, for example, I happen to know a woman who specialized and got her degree in Egyptology and has done many digs uh, uh, over in Egypt, and she told me that in the British Museum there are a lot of uh, stones and things that have been labeled as pornographic <laughs> and are hidden away when, in fact, 
they're actually sexual rites and rituals. And she just has no way of getting to them. So a lot of that stuff is hidden. There's probably Sumerian stuff that is hidden. Well, I was was going to mention... I was going to mention uh, Gilgamesh, and there's there's quite a lot of homoeroticism going on in that book, the Sumerian uh, poem, Gilgamesh. Yeah, absolutely. I don't go into that aspect of it. Uh, where I tr- go back to is looking at the earliest sh- uh, shamanic cultures and their leftovers today in some of the early pagan traditions where uh, people would go out into their crops and have uh, sex on the fields in order to encourage their crops to grow or spread their, uh, their fluids on the fields uh, as a way of fertilizing it mm. and make, fertile, uh, make it fertile. So that is the earliest uh, that I go to. Are there other trends? Um, probably. I'm, I'm certainly not going to deny it, but I just found one thread that sort of worked its way through, and I, I stuck with that one. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's very fascinating. Thank you. Do you find that when people pick up the book, they can, they'll sometimes be a little bit disappointed because there's this kind of uh, myth that surrounds sex magic, isn't there? That uh, has been kind of perpetuated by like horror films mainly <laughs> and, and various other things. Eyes wide shut. Well, uh, yeah. <laughs> possibly there was that uh, an amazing film about Crowley uh, being reincarnated. Oh yeah, <laughs> Chemical <laughs> Wedding. Yeah, we know yeah, it well. Chemical Wedding, or which ca- was. Or carry on Crowley, we like to call it. <laughs> yeah, right. uh, uh, I, I really enjoyed the first half and then it fell apart. Yeah. It, it got well, into that, plus uh, Eyes Wide Shut. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, uh, sort of thing. Night's Gate. Um, yeah, I, I would say there is a lot of that. However, I think modern sex magic goes a lot further than most of the other books on sex magic that you will normally find in that uh, I had a section, and when I originally sent the manuscript to the publisher, I suggested that they bind it with a strip of paper uh, just to make it look even... Uh, <laughs> more sexy. More forbidden. <laughs> and, yeah, yeah, basically, because, you know, let's face it, sex sells. Uh, and I it called the section The Forbidden Sex Magic of the Outsider. Actually, there is a section in in your yeah in in the modern magic book, which uh, I mean, it isn't sealed, but you you do give a, a sort of disclaimer, you know. Yes, well, in modern sex magic, I go even further, and uh, I was going to have that sealed, but they decided not to do it, and I go into such things as uh, working uh, group sex, uh, magic rituals, and. Uh, uh, the use of, I like to call it uh, extreme sensation. Other people might call it uh, BDSM. Mm. Uh, I prefer your the, way, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yoga? <laughs> uh, <laughs> but uh, uh, I don't know of any other mainstream, if you can call it that, uh, book on Western sex magic, uh, which goes into those from a what I like to call a sex-positive point of view, that if people want to use them, they can. And I spell out in there a lot of the possibilities, but also a lot of the difficulties. And, uh, uh, okay, you guys, in, in talking with you, it's obvious that you have been studying occultism for some time. And I have no doubt that you can pick up a book and you can read a ritual and go, 
gosh, this person's never done this ritual. It's impossible to do. <laughs> and I, I, yeah, okay, you, I, you know that's true. Yep, yep. Mm-hmm. I, I see those all the time, too. Uh, well, the same thing happens in, in sex magic, that people say, oh, here's an easy ritual to do. Everybody can do it. And I'm going, wait a second, what about the psychological issues? Uh, mm. What about just the physiological issues? Mm. If you take a lot of people go, oh, yes, Kama Sutra. I think that Kama Sutra was designed for people who are 18 and under, under who are double-jointed. Because <laughs> <laughs> you know, some of those positions are almost impossible to maintain, and I am not a big fan, as some people are, of the Kama Sutra. I, I think it's not very closely associated with Tantra or sex yeah. magic. Yeah. But it can certainly spark up your sex life if uh, that's what you're into, I guess. <laughs> well, but we've had you on the on the line for quite a long time now, and uh, before we let you go, um, I know you've just written a new book. I haven't actually read it yet because I haven't got it, but uh, can you tell us a little bit about your new novel? Absolutely. Uh, I am really excited. I have a new novel out called The Resurrection Murders. Uh, it's published by Galdi Press here in the States. Uh, I set up a website for it if people are interested, which is www.resurrectionmurders.com. Uh, basically, all of the occult books that I, or occult novels that I've been reading are either by people who have no idea of what occultism is really about, or they, uh, most of the recent ones seem to be set back in uh, uh, a thousand years ago or in some imaginary world. This one has three plots going on with uh, characters who I try to spend a lot of time in development with, and it's taking place today in that uh, uh, wonderful, calm place, Hollywood, California. <laughs> and the basic plot is that there is a well. The basic plots are there is an occult group being led by a magician that is under uh, magical attack, and he is trying to stop the magical attack. Uh, attacks on his group before someone is really hurt. The second plot concerns a bunch of murders that are going on with the bodies ending up in Hollywood, California, and these bodies have occult overtones. And the detective assigned to the case has to try and solve the murders and stop them before anyone else is killed. And the third plot uh, concerns a young woman who is very insecure with herself, uh, unsure of what she's doing, and she keeps finding herself being placed in positions where she has to make decisions. And as she does, she becomes stronger and stronger, both as a woman and a magician. You play this against crazy drug-addled occultists, wacky fundamentalists, office politics, killer smog, massive earthquakes, uh, raves, sex magic, kinky sex, uh, and, uh, oh, a 10,000-year-old demon. Nice. And it all comes together in a very exciting conclusion. Now, uh, originally, when I was writing it, I didn't have the police officer. But uh, a friend told me, uh, don't tell people what's happening. uh, Show it. So the police officer works as sort of an everyman, and he learns more and more about occultism and what magic oh, and yeah. the occult really is all about as the story progresses. So, you're kind so of, it's a, you're a real nice it, way oh. to learn about it as you go. Yeah, you're sort of seeing things through the eyes of the police officer almost, that kind of 
Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. That sounds really good, actually. I, yeah, I definitely want to. Also, also seems to be influenced. Sorry. Also seems to be influenced in for the novel. Oh yeah, yeah. Um. Uh. What author has influenced you for 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 the novel? Ooh. Uh, except except for Dennis that's, Wheatley, who should yes. be. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> question. Uh, uh. I'll tell you what happened. I was starting to read a bunch of modern novels on uh, occult mysteries, and, I, and uh, even just plain novels by famous authors, and I became so disgusted with them that, uh, I mean, one I even threw across the room by very, <laughs> was by a very famous author because the ending was so incredibly obvious. They made it into a movie! It wasn't called Angels and Demons, by any chance, was it? Or uh, The Da Vinci Code? Or... <laughs> uh, no, no, no. This wasn't even uh, an occult book. It was a, a movie uh, and a book which was called Sliver. Oh, uh, my God, yeah, I know, yeah, yeah, we know that, well, yeah. <laughs> yeah well, in, in the book, what happens is uh, the guy who is staring at everybody through TV sets gets his eyes scratched out by the heroine's cat. Yeah. I'm like, oh, come on, that's sort of <laughs> obvious, isn't it? Uh, that was a little too much for me. Uh, long ago, Scott Cunningham stressed to me that it's important to uh, make your characters really, really important and really that they have to evolve. And he recommended a book called Characters Tell the Tale. Mm. So I worked through that book and really worked on developing even minor characters, uh, characters who end up getting killed in five pages and the like. And uh, people are wondering, no, it's not really gory. Uh, and most of the book, uh, uh, all of the uh, violence takes place off off camera, so to speak. Mm. Uh, so you don't see what actually happens. Oh, there's astral battles, all sorts of fun things. Oh, cool. But uh, uh, when it comes to mo- uh, modern writers who I really like, I actually, my real favorite authors are, are some of the more classic authors, and they're, uh, they're more humorous attitudes. If you go back to books, like uh, Mark Twain and, and uh, uh, books by Mark Twain uh, and the way he worked with language and Edgar mm. Allan Poe, although I prefer H.P. Lovecraft. Lovecraft. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, Lovecraft, I really think, is a terrible writer. Uh, <laughs> that is, if you start reading his stories, every, uh, especially in the Cthulhu mythos, they're all the same story. Yeah. You know, somebody <laughs> falls upon this and either he ends up joining or he's able to defeat the bad guys. Uh, they're, they're all the same. But he makes imagery and moods mm. that are second to none. And uh, it's like I say, uh, yeah, read Edgar Allan Poe, you go, wow, that's interesting, it's scary. Read H.P. Lovecraft, and you go, okay, turn on the lights, pour the coffee, <laughs> I am not going to sleep tonight. Uh, so I, I, like, I also very much like the storytelling abilities of... Uh, uh, of Robert Howard. Uh, yes, I know the the stories of Conan and Cull uh, and all that are silly, but they're good stories. Yeah, the writing isn't that good, but the storyline is what was important in his stuff. Yeah. And he had very good, well-thought-out stories. So I like some of the old writers. Um, uh, Heller's Catch-22. Mm. Uh, uh, I've read... Some of Crowley's fiction, and Crowley is very interesting because some of his stuff is very, very modern, 
and some of it sounds very, very Victorian. <laughs> and he would often do it in the same book. So some of it would be very drawn out, and others would be uh, alive and contemporary as today. I think if uh, anybody said, what's being drug-addicted like, I'd say, here, read the first half of Diary of a Drug Team, <laughs> which is one of the most incredible books I have ever read. I think it's uh, yeah. unbelievable. Uh, but uh, then avoid his poetry. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I think uh, his his, uh, his word poem, Kong Song Pax, is just unbelievably good. But some of his other poetry mm, and mm. his plays, excuse me. I, I saw some people put on one of the rites of Eleusis. The first 10 minutes were people talking from behind a curtain. <laughs> what sort of a play is that? <laughs> Was that the, uh, rock, the rock opera version? That was uh, no, performed no. In LA. This was uh, yeah. a local OTO body was putting it on right. to raise some money. Ah, right. So hey. they were just following the directions. Yeah. They even had a woman who uh, played violin, who could, and they had found the original parts that uh, Layla Waddell had oh, played. Okay. Oh, that's so cool. Anyway, um, so yeah, Don, thanks so much for coming on, and uh, sorry for keeping you on the line so long as well. Uh, but, oh, but, I've had a great time. Yeah, me too. Yeah, it's been good. Yeah, thank you, Don. Yeah, so uh, yeah, thanks a lot, and we'll have to get you back on the show soon. I would love to. My best to everybody out there, and uh, uh, keep up the great website. And I look forward to talking to you soon too. Episode 14 of My Space Heroes, with me, Daddy Tank. This week, The Jacks Parsons Project with Corinth, Factura with Piano Expert 2, and Caracoid, Too Much Space, The Factoid Remix.
much space in your room. The ceiling's too high and the walls are empty. White is spreading over. That's too much space in your room. There's too much silence in your head. Speechless thoughts and dead ideas mingle quietly. There's too much silence in your head. Much dust in your mouth. Too many years have passed since you last tried to make sense when speaking to yourself for a change. Too many reasons not to move forward. Too many actions stayed undone. But it's never time to wake up. There's too much emptiness in your dreams. There's too much space in your room. The ceiling's too high and the walls are empty. White is spreading over. There's too much space in your room. There's too much silence in your head. Speechless thoughts and dead ideas. Mingle quietly. There's too much silence in your head. Too many reasons not to move forward. Too many actions stayed undone. But it's never time to wake up. There's too much emptiness in your dreams. There's too much space in your room. The ceiling's too high and the walls are empty. White. Spreading over. That's too much space in your room. 
Okay, and we're back. Uh, thanks to Daddy Tank for the uh, this week's MySpace Heroes. That was a, a good one. Guys, what did you think of our interview with uh, Michael Craig? Um, I thought he was, like you said earlier, funny. Yeah, I, 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 I appreciated um, how candid he was about um, uh, the subject of sex Sorry, magic and, and tantra. Um, much like his book, actually, um, which is is very refreshing. I mean, like we touched upon in the in the program, there are only a handful of books that sort of cover sex magic, and um, they're they're either very male centric or um, a very uh, uh, the techniques are given in a very sort of coded way that um, they're not really letting you in on anything. It's not very practical and. Um, as you, you heard from the interview, um, he's very candid about things, and I think that's you know, it's very refreshing to have. Yeah, you know. very kind of uh, like I said before, like plain English as well, which is always a nice, uh, nice way to read about magic. Because uh, for the beginner, you can kind of pick up a Crowley book and just go, uh. "Yeah, <laughs> no, what the hell is this guy talking about?" And uh, yeah, the kind of old style of writing, which uh, I guess modern writers also seem to like to emulate as well, that kind of old style of writing. And uh... Yeah, I mean, and the problem with, um, you know, with uh, Crowley's works in a modern context is that the man was um, a master of the English language and he really wanted people to know that. So <laughs> a lot of his writing is, you know, it's, it's brilliant and, and, and beautiful, um, but uh, quite hard to penetrate at the beginning if you're just sort of coming into it. So, books like Modern Magic um, and others. You've had um, Rodney Orpheus um, on in, on this program uh, before, and you know books like uh, Abracadabra. These um, definitely serve their purpose and sort of um, make this um, subject a bit uh, more you know, penetrable to the newcomers. So it's a good thing. Which is always a good thing. Yeah. Anyway, guys, uh, we'll be seeing you next week. If you want to get in contact with me, my email address is ken at sittingnow.co.uk. Obviously, check out our website, which is sittingnow.co.uk, or com, depending on which floats your boat, really. <laughs> <laughs> you can uh, keep up with us on Twitter. It's at sittingnow. Um, and that's about it, really. We'll see you guys next week. Thanks for listening.